You've heard of BetaShares. You've probably seen the logo on our podcast. You might even be among their 1 million investors. So you can imagine that I'm delighted to say BetaShares is the official ETF partner of the Australian Finance Podcast. With nearly 100 exchange-traded funds, you can go to betashares.com.au and immerse yourself in ETFs and unique insights covering all of the sectors, themes, core and satellite positions you could want. Think cybersecurity through the Hack ETF, robotics and AI with the RBTZ ETF, and uranium with the URNM ETF. The list goes on. To explore the BetaShares ETF range, visit betashares.com.au, read the relevant PDS and TMD on the website, and consider if the fund is right for you. BetaShares Capital Limited is the issuer. Is there a Spotify wrapped for investing? If you want to invest in shares or ETFs, our friends at Perla are more than one step ahead of the curve. On average, people who use Perla invest $1,750 every month. That's what we want to see, proper dollar cost averaging. With automated investing tools making your life simple, Perla investors have well and truly mastered the art of investing small bits lots of times. So if you're ready to start growing your net worth in 2024, follow the link in your Spotify or Apple podcast player right now to discover how you can get started today. Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. Kate, welcome to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast. Great to be back, Owen. Yeah, we've got a very special guest with us today. Um, this guest, and I'll, I'll try and do him justice uh, just in the, in the limited time I have available. Steve Kalilalay is the founder of a company on the ASX called Integrated Research. So the investors amongst us might know this company. He's an AO recipient, if I'm not mistaken. He's yep. the founder of the Institute for Economics and Peace and the founder of the Charitable Foundation and so much more. Steve, thanks for joining Kate and I on the show. It's my pleasure to be here. We, uh, we've been wanting to talk about some important macro topics, but you come at it from such an important angle, which is this angle of peace, um, and in particular something called positive peace. Uh, Kate and I have had Peter Singer on the show recently, and we just love talking about this kind of thing and just thinking about ways that we can do better and ways that we can think better. Kate, I might throw it over you to get the ball rolling on some of the things we want to ask Steve. Yeah, absolutely. So I had a few listener questions in the last few months uh, wanting us to cover the topic of universal basic income. And now neither Owen or I are experts in that area. We've read a little bit, we've listened to a bit, but it was time to find an expert. So after a bit of hunting, we actually found Steve. So Thank you so much for joining us, Steve. And I'd love to talk and start the conversation off with what is the concept of universal basic income or UBI and how does it work? Well, basically, the idea is that every citizen gets a certain amount of money. And the idea of that then is that will replace a lot of the social welfare systems and payments which are in place. So, 
there aren't any countries currently which have actually implemented. So the pilots on limited scales are running in or have run in places like Finland, Canada, Netherlands and Iran. So if you came back and you think about it, let's say, in an Australian environment, if you took the 24 million Australians and you were to give them $10,000 each, let's say, as a basic income, that would be $240 billion, uh, which we'd be paying out. But that versus the Australian tax take of about $560 billion. So that's a lot. But at 10000 per annum per person, uh, we look at, let's say, Unemployment benefits at the moment, and that's under the JobKeeper, that's about 15000 a year. So it still wouldn't even match that, and we'd be taking up 40% of our tax take. Mm-hmm. So the concept is nice in principle, but to do it as a fully universal payment, the country's unlikely to be able to afford it, and we're obviously one of the more wealthy countries in the world. So that then brings it back, and you start to need, to, if you're going to implement it, look at it in terms of, I guess, bringing it in some other way. So there are certain citizens you'd exclude from this, maybe the wealthy, but how much of the wealthy would you exclude? Maybe 10%? doesn't make a big difference. You could exclude children, maybe. Uh, that then would certainly make a big difference. But anyway, you look at it, you're still probably going to need some form of social welfare, even if you do implement it. So let's say you bought it at 5000 a year, which is probably affordable. Uh, that's about $120 billion for Australia. So it's probably affordable, but you'd still need the welfare systems. And the attraction of it originally was it cuts out a whole range of uh, different benefits, which were expensive to administer and, and problematic in some ways in their implementation. So it wouldn't necessarily get rid of that. If we go to Switzerland, for example, in 2016, they did have a referendum there on introducing it there, but it got voted down by 77% of the population. So it wasn't so popular there once people looked into it. Mm-hmm. If you did brought it in, uh, two political considerations from it. One, there's now be an immense political incentive to keep on increasing it because Political parties go to the poll, something most people get. You offer to increase it, you're probably going to get a pretty strong uh, grand swell of support. I think the second thing is when you're looking at it also, public service. So in theory, it's going to streamline the public service. It's going to get a whole rid of a whole lot of departments and payments. And with that comes a fair number of people who wouldn't get, not going to have jobs and have to be re-employed elsewhere. So I think just quickly, that's a rough uh, summarisation of the way I see it anyway. Steve, you, you said a number in there. You said with, I don't know if you said with or without JobKeeper, something like $15,000 a year is what people would be on or job seeker? Yeah, something like that. It's $285 per week from memory. And, and have, uh, for, for Australia, have you done the numbers to uh, estimate what we're currently paying per person for social security or benefits? No, I haven't got those kind of uh, figures available. Mm-hmm. It's it's that's fine. I just feel like uh, I, I see one of the things that I guess we talk about a lot in economics lately. It seems is a book called Modern Economics, which introduces this idea, which is not so modern of modern monetary theory, um, and talking about getting to full employment rates. And and I guess my big picture take of that um, was 
you know, people would probably think, well, Steve, why don't we just pay people this? Is there any problem? Like, does does it matter if the government runs into a deficit and pays, you know, ten or fifteen thousand dollars a year to people? Does that matter? Well, I guess that's the concept of MMT, isn't it? Modern monetary theory is that the or quantitative easing is that the government uh, can print money and take, uh, give it to the banks, and then as long as the debt's back to the government, then the government's not going to foreclose on itself, so it's all fine. But, gee, we can go back to the Chinese times, and what we found then is they started to print money and ended up with runaway inflation. Uh, mm. We'll see it again and again and again, uh, recording through history. So the age we're in at the moment, and I'm not an expert on this by any means, but I'll, I'll throw in a couple of comments anyway, I think in the current age we're in, we've got very, very low inflation, and that's why we can actually do this. Mm. So now, if you think what's creating the very, very low inflation in some places negative, uh, it's two, twofold. One is, is we've improved our manufacturing processes, costs of goods have increased. We're also finding in, the, in many of the Western countries in the world, uh, Workers, the rights have been eroded, and we're also seeing decreases in the average wages in many countries as well. This is particularly true, let's say, in the US, across Europe, and we could see it in the last few years in Australia. So now, under those kind of environment, you can do it. But the issue, and I know this one, this one is a fact, uh, if you're looking at the banks at the moment, they're swimming in money. So mm. There are a couple of banks I can think of. If you went to at the moment and you put five million in them, you'd get uh, from thirty to ninety day bills. You get uh, one interest rate. If you put in over five million, you get 0.2 percent less on your interest rate because it's so much money they don't know how to get it out. That was part of the reason for the government uh, relaxing its uh, lending regulations uh, last month. So it's one thing to have all this money sloshing around in the system. The other question is, where does the money go? So for business, what it needs is it needs areas to invest. But when economies aren't growing, where do they invest? It gets very, very hard to find the productive spot. So where do you park the money? Into the stock market or into property, which then causes those assets to inflate. Do you think at all universal basic income could ever be possible in Australia? Because I know you were saying how, before you were saying how much it would cost us just if we were giving people five to $10,000. And for most people, that's not even a living wage without our standard of living here. So I think it sounds like it might not even be possible based on sort of the revenue we currently have as a country. Look, I think that's the sticking point. I think the concept's an excellent uh, yeah, point. Hmm. But it's really works if you can do away with a lot of the uh, social welfare payments. But it appears to me that at the level to do that, well, the taxation system isn't, isn't, isn't strong enough to take it. So the tax take in Australia is about 33% of GDP, which is slightly on the, it's a little bit on the low side compared to other OECD countries. But maybe you could up at 7% to do this, but that's not going to be enough to make the difference. Mm-hmm. So it needs a lot more thought. There may be, may be ways of doing it by selectively picking which sorts of uh, social welfare uh, payments you want to keep, but it, would need, it does need a lot of thought, a lot of thought.
Steve, one thing that we learnt back in school for those of us who went and studied uh, economics or anything like that at, at uni is we learned about these these things called poverty traps and idea and an idea that you know if if you come to live on a government income or subsidy of some sort that you might there might be no incentive for you to go back to work and so um, I guess if we're if we're just thinking I'm just trying to think in my head um, I guess are there any risks to that and then the second thing is are there alternatives to universal basic income well I think the alternative is welfare systems isn't it that's what we're mm. seeing so I think this gets rather gets very very complicated and they're all in all individuals are motivated differently but what we can say, there's certainly a certain number of people, uh, a lot of it will depend on the backgrounds and where they come from, that will be happy uh, to get the money and then have a very subsistence life and not really want to work. There'll be others which will just take the pressure off, which will mean that there'll be, let's say, less dysfunctionality within the families, which means as the next generation comes through, they're more likely to be less affected. So we certainly know, let's say, out of the work we do on peace, the countries with the highest levels of uh, peace, uh, the most wealthy countries in the world, or amongst the the uh, uh, more wealthy countries, combined with generally strong democratic institutions and strong social safety nets. Because when people fall through the social safety nets, what happens is one is you start to get poverty. Uh, poverty mm. means people haven't got enough to eat or they're eating very, very badly. Uh, that then affects their health, then affects the next generation coming through. And if it's bad enough, they don't get enough nutrients for the brain. So you've got all these ongoing effects. We certainly know that there's more crime uh, associated with poverty. So you increase the levels of poverty, you increase the levels of crime, you also increase the levels of drug taking, a whole lot of other antisocial behaviour as well. In Was it Switzerland that you brought up earlier on, Steve? Was that the the occasion where you said it got voted down? Uh, that, that was the instance where there was a truckload of, of gold coins brought into the street and, and tipped out. Was that right? Was that the one? I can't remember that incident, but uh, yeah, it does sound like it uh, could have happened in Switzerland, <laughs> but I'm sure they didn't tip out too many gold coins. And I'd be even probably more sure that they were fake gold coins. <laughs> Most likely. So that brings me to a point though, Steve, is uh, in your opinion, where is this concept um, and this, I guess, idea most likely to go ahead if it does go ahead somewhere? Is Australia the, the place or is, it, or is there somewhere else in your mind? Oh, I think there are other countries which are much more likely to uh, pick up on it before uh, Australia does. I think we'd, and Australian government, I think because it's a fairly conservative government, really want to, and that's to, regardless of whether it's Labor or Liberal, would want to see it implemented in other countries. So as I mentioned, there are pilots that have been running in countries like Finland, although Finland said once it finishes its pilots, it's not going to go any further. Canada, Netherlands, and would you believe Iran or mm. no experiment, but Iran pulled back and that was after they had the sanctions put in and the drop on oil prices so it made the whole thing uh, yeah, economically unviable there. And one of the things that I was really interested to talk to you about, because I 
it's quite a niche area and I'd never really been exposed to it is the idea of uh, measuring and understanding global peace. And I was really keen to hear, how did you even get started in this this area of um, investigating what this is and, and ending up creating the Global Peace Index? Well, Kate, absolutely by accident, would you believe? <laughs> so what's happened, as you mentioned earlier, I've set up a couple of international IT companies. One ended up public listed on NASDAQ, the other on the Australian Stock Exchange, Integrated Research. And so I've made good money out of all of that. So I set up a family foundation, which is active in the developing world. So it works with the poorest of the poor. Mm-hmm. We've done about 200 projects now globally out of that and with direct beneficiaries of about 3.6 million people. So it's, it's done a lot. But working with the poorest of the poor ended, ended up I meant spending time in war zones, near post war zones, a lot of the most stressed countries in the world because that's where the poorest people are. Mm-hmm. And I was walking through northeast Kabul in the Congo, which is probably one of the more violent places in the world. And I suddenly started to think, well, what are the most peaceful nations in the world? And was there anything I could learn from that to bring to my projects? Searched the internet, couldn't find a thing. And that's how the Global Peace Index was born. Mm. That poses a really simple question. Because if a simple businessman like myself can be walking through Africa and wonder what are the most peaceful nations in the world and hasn't been done, then how much do we know about peace? Mm. As a businessman, if you can't measure something, Can you really understand it? Mm. You can't measure it. How do you know whether your actions are helping you or hindering in achieving your goals? You don't. So like then, as I started to look into it more, I realised we didn't really study peace. Even when you went to a peace and conflict centre or peace centre, they were mainly studying conflict and how to stop it. Mm. And the study of peace is fundamentally different than the study of war or conflict. Mm. Because the things which it creates to create a highly peaceful society are different than the things you need to stop conflict. And the best way of looking at that is just a simple analogy. So if you think of health, you think there's been great breakthroughs in uh, pathology. None of us are going to die a heart attack young. However, it wasn't until we studied healthy people, we knew how what we needed to stay well, fit and healthy. So mm-hmm. it's things like right exercise, good mental disposition, correct diet. You're not going to learn any of those things from studying someone on their deathbed. And so that's mm-hmm. different than uh, studying conflict and peace. The analogy is the same. So in the book, Peace in the Age of uh, Chaos, uh, all, set all this out in, in uh, graphic detail. Yeah, and it's really interesting. What so when you did create the Global Peace Index, what com- countries were the most peaceful in the world? It didn't turn out to be much of a surprise, really. It's a lot, exactly a lot of the way you'd think it would be. Mm. But the middle ranks turned out to be a lot more interesting. So if we go to the top of the index, you'll find that the uh, uh, five of them are in Scandinavia, mm-hmm. uh, three of them are in Asia. Uh, you'll find that one's in North America and one's in the middle of the Atlantic, and that's number one on the index, and that's Iceland. So a lot of people cracked a joke, well, no wonder Iceland's at the top. It's too cold for anyone to go outside at night. (laughs) (laughs) But when you 
look at their history, they've got an enviable history of peace dating back a thousand years. Mm. The last major fight they had internally within the country was about 1060 AD, uh, where Mm. about 400 people have been killed and they haven't had an internal conflict since. They created the first parliament in the world. And also, if we look at these countries at the top of the index, all bar one are all fully-fledged democracies. Mm. And the one country which is not is Singapore. So there's this relationship between democracy uh, uh, and this is just not elections, but fully functional democracy with separations of powers and peace. But the thing for your readers, which I think, again, set out, uh, set it out really clearly in the book, Peace in the Age of Chaos, is the economic factors associated with peace. So what we did is we've got, oh, I don't know, something like, uh, it's over 25,000 different data sets, indexes, attitudinal surveys. So we did a whole lot of statistical analysis to understand what are the factors which are most associated with highly peaceful societies. And that's what we call positive peace, for want of a better word. Needed a different description for peace other than just peace. Mm-hmm. And so then we turned that round in an index. And once we did that, we could then very easily see how these effect factors affected other things we think are important. So countries which are improving in positive peace and high in positive peace, or one or the other, on average over the last 60 years have had 2% per annum higher GDP growth rates. That's, mm. that, that, that's Believe me, that's a lot. That really is a lot as you start to compound it over 50 years. You find that uh, interest rates are lower, inflation rates are lower, and less varied. Foreign direct investments about twice as high. Sovereign debt ratings were also uh, performed better. So in many, many ways, we found that these strong uh, relationships between economics and peace, which for us was staggering. So mm. this work now, I've sort of given presentation the International Chamber of Commerce. We're working with the World Trade Organization using this research and a number of different uh, fund managers around the world to create better products for targeting which countries are going to have the highest GDP growth in the future. But other things came out of it too, like measures of well-being, higher measures of well-being and happiness are statistically associated with positive peace, better performance of measures of ecology, better measures of inclusion, including gender. So in many ways, this positive peace describes an optimal environment for human potential to flourish, and that is profound, because we're living in an age where we our Democratic institutions need something to revitalise them. I think positive peace can do it. Mm. And I, I know you mentioned uh, having a democratic government. What are some of the other indicators of high positive peace in a country? Well, it comes down to a so this this can be sliced and diced in different ways. So what we've done is brought it down to a topology of eight different factors. None of these will come as a surprise to any of any of your listeners, Kate. Mm. But they're things like well-functioning government, strong business environment, equitable distribution of resources. That doesn't mean equal, but equitable. Mm. Uh, high levels of human cap capital, free flow of information, which is epitomised by a free press such as this broadcast, uh, things like uh, high levels of human capital, uh, you've got low levels of corruption, good relationships with neighbours. And so these eight 
pillars come together and interact together. So it's systemic. You've then got to introduce and overlay it with something which is too complex to discuss really in detail on this show, but it's concept of systems theory and the way systems operate. Because a lot of the time when we look at problems, we're looking at a cause and effect. There's a problem. This is the cause. Let's fix the cause and the problem goes away. But it's not Mm. the way societies operate. So really, you need to take these eight pillars, view them systemically, and then view it through a lens which is appropriate for where that society's development at and that way you can work out how to stimulate a whole system but some of the things which is which we use in the positive peace index let's say which is statistical statistically significant uh, will be let's say things like uh, if looking at the attitudes of a society fractionalized elites so that's where the elites within a society start getting further apart and fighting more. We can see that epitomised in the US elections currently in the last few years there. Corruption, a uh, low levels of corruption, uh, measures of the rule of law, they become very, very important as well. And so there'd be a couple of the different things which come into it. Uh, uh, there's measures of the uh, the uh, functioning of business, which is done, let's say, uh, by study, by research, uh, which comes out of the World Bank, and they're, they're easy doing business. Uh, rankings, that would be, yeah, that'd be other, other extent examples. The other ones would be the quality of information within a society. And obviously this podcast is about increasing quality of information within society. But in many Western societies, it's been deteriorating over the last decade. Exclusion of socioeconomic groups is key. And you can see that particularly related to conflict in many of the less peaceful countries in the world. So that'd be some of the things. It sounds... As if you say some of the things, Steve, but it sounds like it's a very, you know, sophisticated way to measure positive peace. Uh, and I imagine it's brought about over many, many years of, of research and consultation with key stakeholders. Yes, we've been at this about 15 years now. So we've got a large body of research. And for me, I just, I'm an accidental man of peace. And so I mentioned earlier <laughs> on how I got there. But for me, this has been, learning about positive peace has been profoundly changed the way I actually view society and particularly mm-hmm. the implementation of systems thinking into it. Because it's vastly different, different uh, way of being able to actually just perceive the way societies operate and work. And I guess that's why I wrote Peace in the Age of Chaos. Uh, It was really to try and get that out and then picked a lot of the uh, various pieces of adventures uh, which I'd had in the developing world, uh, some in some fairly violent places, to try and then ground it with these concepts to see how they'd play out in real life. And so that's all in the book. Fantastic. Yeah, we'll put... Uh, plenty of show notes uh, in. So for listeners, if you if you want to hear more about uh, Steve's journey and, and get a copy of his book, Steve, uh, I've just ordered a, a copy. Um, I know we talked about it. it's on Amazon, but we'll also put a link in peaceintheageofchaos.org. It's, uh, it's in the show notes. But Steve, one of the things that we're, we're keen to talk about and just kind of dovetailing in with this idea of um, universal basic income is how does, a, how does Australia go from here insofar as, you know, moving forward from our first recession. How do you see this playing out and um, how can we do our, our job as individuals to distribute wealth? 
Yeah, well, I think there's a real issue, I think, coming up, and it's just not Australia, it's globally. And Australia, in many ways, is in a much, much better position than many other countries. So there is, it's unlikely that the current economic downturn is really going to finish any time in the next couple of years. It will take a number of years to get back to the GDP levels of 2019. So I think we're going to have depressed economic conditions for some time. So it's really important of how now societies focus on concepts of equity as we move forward. So one of the more troubling trends is if we look in the decade to the end of 2019, the number of demonstrations and riots globally went up 240%. That's a lot. So that Hmm. is an indication of dissatisfaction within Hmm. societies. So now, as we move to the back end of COVID-19 and we get more deeper into the the downturn in the economies and without a bounce back, concepts of equity are going to become really important. So if there's major erosions, let's say, in wages and working conditions, that's likely to come back and have some really profoundly negative effects on Mm. societies in the longer term, particularly Mm. seeing we live in societies which are consumption-based. So if Mm. you haven't got the average workers' wages increasing, then you haven't got an increase, really, in consumption. The only way you can do it is with debt, and there's Mm. got to be limits on debt at some point. And we've been building those limits up now for the last 15 years, 20 years. So what I see is that there needs to be a real focus on this concept of equity as we move forward rather than a concept of competitiveness so that the costs and imports into businesses fall. So, Steve, just just so I can kind of wrap my head around this, are you almost saying that we're moving towards this this idea of universal basic income almost out of necessity because what we've been doing for the past 15 years is kind of fueling some things that maybe aren't ideal and sustainable. Oh, I think there's a lot a lot of things. I think society in generally isn't focusing enough on sustainability. And a lot of this is comes back to, let's say, you can't blame the politicians because they're all on three or four-year cycles. So mm. they're, they're a time horizon's the next election. What can they do in that time and what will be popular? But look, uh, we've just brought out an ecological threat register some six weeks ago and it uh, looked at the ecological shocks around the world. And like there's a, a, particularly in terms of water uh, and food, uh, we've got some... Re- a lot of countries have got real issues coming up in the future. And a lot of it comes back to just overpopulation, over usage of what resources are there. So we can all see a whole range of just different uh, issues with the ecosystem, whether it's the acidification of the oceans, it's the uh, over-fertilisation, it's the loss of biodiversity, it's climate change. There's a whole range of issues. So that's one dimension, but the same, we're thinking the same way about sort of economies and the way our economies are running. We're not giving enough thought to what is a long-term viable, sustainable economic model. 
And it's certainly not one of the decreasing working conditions, decreasing wages to become more competitive mm. uh, uh, with countries where the average wage is 10000 a year. Mm. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, and I imagine for those listeners who are, who are playing along, um, it's probably one of those things which it kind of think it, it, we, we all kind of think it's a little bit um, up there, a bit out there. We can't really influence in any way, you know, how these things take shape. Would you have any, I guess, steps or even resources that people can find to understand how they can have more of an impact and, and kind of catch up with these important topics, Steve? Well, I think, The first one is we've all got to uh, control over our own consumption patterns. Think about Mm. your consumption patterns. uh, And like most people don't, even even when they're uh, committed to uh, these courses. But we can all got control over our consumption patterns. We've all got control over our own debt. So is it better to delay something, immediate gratification, for terms of your long-term higher gratification so it's all sorts when when you're buying produce so you, you, what type of produce are we buying what's the sustainability of it where does it come from what's its carbon footprint uh, all these all these things are important uh, car, just voting uh, yeah voting's mm-hmm. And the parties which you think are most viable for long-term sustainability, and the, the sustainability has to be within an economic context because the economies fall, then sustainability falls as well uh, mm. from from an environmental perspective. Anyway, so it's not good enough just to say how oh, I'm green to be green. Uh, one needs to have that wrap within the appropriate uh, economic wrappers. So there's all sorts of, yeah, so focusing on all those kind of things, or it, it helps signing the right petitions. Uh, all that helps, really does. Hmm. Yeah, these are some great steps and, and a great some great takeaways for this conversation, Steve. Um, we're going to, again, to listeners, we're going to include all these links. We're going to include a link to the Ecological, Ecological Threat Register, Steve's uh, new book, um, and also some links to find out more about him. So, Steve, thanks for taking the time out today to talk about these important topics with Kate and I. Oh, it's great. I thought the questions from uh, you and Kate have been outstanding. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it. Fantastic. Wonderful. Kate, Kate, as always, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Owen. Are you thinking about starting your wealth creating journey, but not sure where to put your hard earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no-obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core in a satellite, 
active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.